You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world. We highlight the latest and most interesting trends and bring you information on human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Nikita Lorenzo Calling, and we're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today, we welcome our guest, Alan Ware. Alan is a peace educator and nuclear disarmament consultant. In 2009, he received the Right Livelihood Award for his extensive effort to promote peace education and disarmament. In 1983, Alan started to work as a kindergarten teacher after completing the Bachelor of Education and receiving a diploma of kindergarten teaching. After a year of teaching, Alan decided to establish the Mobile Peace Van Society, which traveled from school to school in order to educate on peace and disarmament. For five years, he taught and coordinated all aspects of its peace education program in preschools, primary schools, and secondary schools. He successfully campaigned for nuclear-free zones in New Zealand, which is still an ongoing global campaign. Welcome. Can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, Alan? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I very much enjoy this experience and uh, I hope it's of interest to the listeners. So I think probably, you know, my first uh, issue which brought to my attention was the nuclear tests that were being undertaken by France in the Pacific. Uh, This was when I was in high school. Uh, Prior to that, the United States and the United Kingdom had also undertaken nuclear tests in the Pacific, but they had finished. Uh, The French were still doing them, and these nuclear tests are where the governments detonate a nuclear bomb. It's a nuclear explosion. And they were doing it in the Pacific because, as Henry Kissinger said, well, there's only 90,000 people out there who gives a damn. I mean, he was exaggerating, of course, uh, or undermining the number of people. We have more than 90,000 people in the Pacific. But these big powers didn't really care what was happening to Pacific people, mostly indigenous people in the islands. And the impact on that was horrific. The stillbirth, deformed babies, cancers from the radiation from these nuclear tests. So my first experience was supporting one of the Greenpeace boats that sailed over to Mururoa to protest the nuclear tests. But then, as I entered into uh, Teachers College, it became even more real because it wasn't over away from New Zealand and the Pacific, but nuclear ships were coming into our harbours. Because uh, New Zealand was part of a nuclear alliance with the United States. And these are horrible things. I mean, these nuclear ships, aircraft carriers, which were you know, carrying uh, nuclear depth charges and other nuclear weapons, uh, cruise missiles with nuclear weapons on. And we even had submarines coming in, which had nuclear weapons. And you know that one of these ships or one of these submarines can wipe out you know, like 20 cities. It's just horrible. So as I was training to be a kindergarten teacher at the time during the day, but then on the weekends and the nights I was campaigning to ban nuclear weapons from New Zealand. And we were successful in 1984. Uh, but then, you know, we realized that, well, it's not good enough just to ban them for your own country. It's a nuclear war anywhere in the world. It's going to affect the whole world. So we have to work globally. So it was after that time Uh, that I then got involved in the campaign to take the issue of nuclear weapons to the International Court of Justice. And the reason, you know, I wasn't a lawyer back then, uh, but the reason I saw this as being really important was because I saw what happened with the French nuclear test case, is that our campaigns to try and stop them hadn't worked. But when New Zealand took France to the International Court of Justice, 
1974, it forced France first to stop atmospheric testing, and then New Zealand resumed the case a number of years later over the underground testing, and that also forced France to stop the underground testing there and close the test site. So I saw as like a non-lawyer, wow, this International Court of Justice, it can actually do something you know, for small countries like in the Pacific, like New Zealand, against the powerful countries. So that's when I started getting involved in the idea of taking the whole issue of nuclear weapons to the International Court of Justice. Um, and I ended up going over to New York um, and leading the campaign to get the UN General Assembly uh, to take this issue to the court. It didn't happen immediately. There was a few experiences in between then. Yes. Um, but that's basically sort of like, the, I think, the formative um, experience that led me into moving from just education about peace and disarmed to the utilization of law to help build a better world. Thank you. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. How can we be inspired by and integrate Maori law? Would you like to share a little bit about this? Uh, so you're talking about the indigenous peoples of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa yes. is the original Maori name and New Zealand is, I'd say, the colonized name. Yes. Uh, and both names are official. Mm-hmm. And our experience in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has been really important because there was an agreement when the colonisers came, and I'm from the colonisers. My ancestry is Danish, Scottish and English. So my ancestors, you know, came to uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. uh, And there was an agreement called the Treaty of Waitangi, which was between the indigenous people and the colonising force. But then the colonising force never recognised it or implemented it and just imposed a European-style system on the country, European-style parliament, European law, you know, European education system. Uh, and and this lasted for probably uh, nearly 150 years until eventually the campaigns from Māori for Māori rights were successful. Uh, and that also included uh, a number of, we call Pākehā, the non-Māori, realising that it was actually going to be better for us to have a legal education political system that reflected the indigenous values and law, not just the colonial law. So that's when we had then the Treaty of Waitangi actually got some force. And we had a whole series of tribunals mm-hmm. in the Treaty of Waitangi, which was looking at uh, the implementation of the treaty. And under the treaty, it guaranteed taonga, which is called treasures. So treasures could be land, it might be others, it could be the culture, the language, um, it even included the airwaves, for example, <laughs> so that through the Waitangi Treaty, a Māori got access to airwaves to set up Māori radio stations. I mean, there are a number of different aspects, but um, the key thing was is that there started to be an acknowledgement that Māori law is important law, and that, that these can coexist. Mm-hmm. And so now we have more of a mixed system where there is a still predominantly European style, but there's a lot more integration of Māori law into our system. And the most interesting example of that is where we look at the idea of ecosystems and trusteeship. Um, so, for example, we've had uh, some recent legislation on the Whanganui River, um, on the Uriwera Forest, and on Mount Taranaki. And each of these has adopted a combination approach of Māori law and bringing in some elements of European or colonising type law to develop a um, a situation where those uh, entities are now uh, have got status as living persons. Mm. 
so as a living person, that's a legal person we're talking about, not a natural person. A natural person, of course, is a biological person, a human being. You know, and a, a um, legal person could be a, an entity, a group of people, like a church, you know, or the government could be a, a person, um, or it could be a natural entity. And this, this is where this has come in. And so now we have Whanganui River, for example, is managed as a legal person, which means it's a, a, um, a consistent uh, body that uh, has to be dealt with as an integrated ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, there will be some law to deal with a fish, another law to deal with a plant life, another law to do with like the boats, you know, what their things are going down the river, another law to do with the water, you know, another law to do with uh, the land along the side and what sediment washes into or what fertilizes, etc. A whole range of like different laws. They're all just looking at different like little parts of the river, but now the river's like a whole. Mm-hmm. And so the, the thing that has to be treated as a whole, and the management now is, is co-governance of Māori, the iwi, or the, the local tribes, uh, and the um, uh, regional governing authorities mm-hmm. working together. So this is a really important example. This is just one of them, Whanganui River. There are others that are showing that we are starting to build a more integrated legal system which draws upon Māori law and the colonial law, um, and that's just having value for everyone. Thank you. Very interesting to see how how they can actually be interlinked and work together. Okay, and so as a peace educator, uh, how do you integrate intergenerational action for climate change in your work? So on the climate change issue, the key um, uh, initiative in which I'm engaged in at the moment is taking the issue of climate change to the International Court of Justice. Uh, in order to determine the legal obligations of states to protect the climate and to address equitably the impacts of climate change because they're impacting uh, in different ways around the world and impacting you know, poorer communities, developing communities, indigenous communities much more than rich and developed communities. So there's two aspects there. The intergenerational part is vital to this mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that the climate change action uh, is being led a lot by young people who are annoyed that the existing institutions and mechanisms are not dealing with the importance of the issue. We know we're already at 1.1 degrees above the average and we're having catastrophic climatic consequences already. The negotiating Paris Agreement allows up to 1.5 and even that's not binding. It's like, and countries are... Don't look as though they're going to be keeping, you know, their commitments even to keep it at 1.5, which is going to be even worse. You know, so, and then if you have a look at the implementation of that at the COP meetings, it's always the lowest common denominator. It's like a consensus process. So those who don't want to change, you know, hold the sway of power and can prevent change. And young people are fed up with that. So they're looking for other ways to take it forward. So this idea of going to the International Court of Justice has come from young people. It was initiated from Pacific Island students fighting climate change, broadened into a a global movement of youth, World's Youth for Climate Justice, uh, to take the case to the International Court of Justice. Uh, And one of the ways why why this can have an impact, a huge impact, is it transcends national interests. It's working on obligation that will be applicable to all, 
which puts it at a much better court to take a case to than, say, a domestic court. There are some really good cases in domestic courts, a gender case in Netherlands, for example, the Shell case. Both of those cases were putting like responsibility on certain entities, but they were limited in what they could address the responsibility. The Urgenda case is only applicable to the Dutch government, because of the Dutch court. You know, the Shell case is applicable to Shell and maybe some of the other corporations by ex- extension, but it's mm-hmm. h- hard to do that. Uh, and so there's limited jurisdiction of the national courts. The International Court of Justice is jurisdiction for the world. So it will be bringing about an obligation, I will say affirming an obligation, that is beyond what's in the Paris Agreement, beyond what's in the COP agreements, it'll be based on customary principles of international law. And what are these customary principles? They are that we have to protect the planet for future generations. There is a principle of uh, intergenerational equity, which means we can't pass on to the planet something worse than what it was when we, you know, our generation received that. That is an injustice to the future generation. We have to pass it on at least as good as how we received it, but probably even better. Mm -hmm. That's the principle of intergenerational equity. Now, the court can apply that. The International Court of Justice can apply that. A lot of domestic courts find that very difficult (laughs) to apply the idea of intergenerational equity because it's not often enshrined in national legislation. But it is part of customary international law. There are other aspects of customary international law which the International Court of Justice can apply. apply. Human rights law, for example. And we had General Comment 36 from the UN Human Rights Committee that said climate change is a violation of the right to life. So you've got under there, I mean, it's under other human rights. We now have the UN General Assembly resolution on the right to a healthy environment. And, you know, climate change impacts on that. So there's a much broader body of law, I'm just mentioning some of them, that the court can apply and will apply and come out with a conclusion, I expect, that will have a very strong obligation on states, but also will provide more capacity for states to take action because if they try, if an individual state tries to take action now, they're at a competitive disadvantage to those states that don't take action. Because if you put in, you know, the mechanisms that are required to cut your carbon emissions, it costs you to do that. And if you're doing that and increasing the costs to your economy, but your neighbour is not doing it, then they can sell their products cheaper, undercut yours, and you're even worse off. This is the tragedy of the global commons. We can't just rely on individual states, you know, like and say, oh, well, look, at least we've got like 100 good states. Doesn't work. The bad ones actually ruin the whole thing. So this is where having a rule, an application from the, from the International Court of Justice can help states because then they'll be confident that they can adopt me- measures that others will also be required to adopt. So these, this is the importance. This is the reason I'm you know, fully behind this. And I've come in because I have a bit of experience with the International Court of Justice because I was involved in taking the case against nuclear weapons uh, back in 94, 95. We had the decision in 96. And it was also building on customary principles of international law. You know, there wasn't like a treaty that the nuclear weapon states had signed on to, you know, saying that they have to give up the nuclear weapons. But there was a lot of law saying these weapons, they violate the, the laws of warfare. If you use them, you know, they would uh, cause indiscriminate harm, which is prohibited under the laws of for- warfare, would violate neutral territory, uh, would cause uh, suffering, un- uh, uh, inhumane suffering on combatants, and would uh, affect future generations. Yeah. So 
the International Court of Justice um, is really important. It's an advisory opinion approach, which means there's a lot of capacity for us to get engaged, and we want to make sure it's the biggest case in the history of the court. It's very interesting to hear you talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And can I ask you to tell us a little bit more about this case that you mentioned, now lastly, from 96? Uh, it actually, the, the real stimulus was when New Zealand banned nuclear weapons. We had you know, like adopted the policy and uh, we were put on, under huge pressure by the United States because we were under an alliance, mm -hmm. uh, not quite the same as NATO, but similar to that. It was called the ANZUS Alliance, Australia, New Zealand and the US. And the United States said to us in New Zealand, uh, you can't ban our nuclear weapons. You're part of a military alliance. You can't tell us what ships we can dock in your ports you know, and whether or not we have nuclear weapons on them. That's our decision on whether we have nuclear weapons on, on our ships that come into your ports. You know, that's, and we said, well, yes, we can. And, they, and so <coughs> we looked at, well, if there's a legal dispute, which this was a legal dispute, how do you deal with that? Ah, the International Court of Justice. So um, we looked at that and go, ah, but we don't want to take a case against the US because we're actually get not against the US, we're against nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So can we take a case against nuclear weapons? And that's where we found this type of approach where you go through a UN body to take a, a, a question of law mm -hmm. to the International Court of Justice as opposed to a specific legal dispute between two states. Uh, and then what we have to do in that is get as many countries as possible to make submissions to the court because uh, civil society doesn't have direct access to the court. But what we can do is we have a country that's going to go and put in a written submission. We can go and meet with the foreign ministry or whoever's putting it, writing the submission and say, hey, can you include some of these things in there? Uh, and we managed to do that. Uh, we also did that in terms of bringing some witnesses to the court. Uh, they don't have like a general approach for witnesses, but what uh, when it comes to the oral part of the court, a government can set up whoever they want on their delegation and their delegation will have an hour and a half to present to the court. So we propose to a number of the delegations to include important witnesses. Mm -hmm. So for Japan, we propose they include the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they did. Uh, for Marshall Islands, we propose, because that's where the US had done nuclear tests, we propose that they have like a, a, someone who had suffered from the impact of the nuclear tests. Uh, and so they had uh, Li Zhang Iknilang, who had had um, eight miscarriages, stillbirths, deformed babies, you know, not one live baby with all of those births, um, some of them looking like an octopus, one eye in the head, um, a horrible, horrible story of all the things she had like delivered um, and not being able to give birth to a live baby. I think one had been living for like a little bit, you know, like a few hours or something. She gave this testimony to the court as part of the Marshall Islands delegation and you could see that that was like her testimony was more important than the testimony of the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because you look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you go, well, maybe the bomber ended the war mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the cities have been rebuilt. Uh, but, you, but those were two small nuclear bombs that have nothing really to do with the nuclear weapons of today, which are like 50, 100 times more explosive. The Marshall Islands was much more similar to what the types of weapons that would be used today. This particular one that affected Lijong and all her, the people on her island was 200 miles away from her island. Uh, and yet the radiation has impacted so that two-thirds of the children had leukemia. It's at huge rates of miscarriages, deformed babies. So when Lijong made that, that 
presentation to the court that even in times of peace, when you can decide when you're going to detonate the bomb to make sure the wind's not blowing over people, even then with today's nuclear weapons, the impact is catastrophic. Imagine at wartime where you can't control those things and it's not just one nuclear bomb, it's like 10 or 100 or 1,000 nuclear bombs. The impact will be like what we have had in the Marshall Islands, only a 1,000 times worse. And it was her statement and her testimony that I think led the court to their conclusion, uh, which they put in the statement, that the destructive impact of nuclear weapons cannot be contained in time nor space. The destructive impact of nuclear weapons cannot be contained in time nor space. That's an incredible conclusion that came from a court, half of which were from countries that are nuclear weapons powers. Mm. You know, it actually it transformed their thinking about this, um, which is why we won the case. I think. And looking at that, that is a really important precedent for what we're looking at climate change because it's similar. The impact of carbon emissions cannot be contained in time nor space. It transcends boundaries uh, and it transcends generations. So I think the, that the nuclear weapons case is going to provide a really important um, basis for some of the principles that will be expanded uh, in the case which is currently proceeding on climate. Okay, so the next question we would like to ask you is, as a peace activist, how do you interlink international law with your activism? Yeah, so this is a really good question because I think I might have mentioned I started as a kindergarten teacher, not as a lawyer, <laughs> but then I saw the, the value of law um, and legal processes in resolving a range of key issues to do with international peace and security and nuclear disarmament. Uh, so firstly, the, the French nuclear test case, uh, and then I got involved in taking this issue of nuclear weapons to the International Court of Justice, that, uh, which we got a determination from the court that the threat or use mm -hmm. of nuclear weapons is generally illegal, uh, and that there's an obligation to pursue nuclear disarmament in all its aspects. So we've got a good decision from the court. It hasn't led yet to the elimination of nuclear weapons, but it's provided a key constraining factor. Um, so, for example, we've seen Putin waving around the nuclear threat, you know, saying, hey, I've got nuclear weapons, don't support Ukraine, or I've got nuclear weapons to depend the new French territories, you know, the occupied territories. But each time, there's generally been a bit of a rollback from Lavrov, who's the foreign minister, saying, well, the policy of Russia is to threaten or use nuclear weapons when the state of Russia is at threat, which is sort of like going back to the court, where the court said generally illegal, just couldn't decide illegality when, in the extreme circumstance of self-defense when the very survival of a state was at stake. So I think that the International Court of Justice case back then um, has helped to provide restraint to ensure we haven't had a nuclear war. It hasn't yet led to the elimination of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So what was I starting this question on again? I diverted a little bit. <laughs> That's the, okay. The original question was... Yes, how you interlink... Ah, international uh, law, yes. With your activism. So, so, That's okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm talking international law all the time. Uh, as Actually, as I was um, working on getting the case into the International Court of Justice, I, I was in Nicaragua. I went around a number of different countries to get their support. And I was in Nicaragua, and actually I had a wrong number. But on the end of the phone, it was a person who ended up being quite interested in what we were talking about. Um, ended up meeting up with her, and she was one of the lawyers in the Nicaragua case versus the United States. All right. And this is when Nicaragua took the United States to court over the United States support for the Contras, military support to try and overthrow the Nicaraguan government. Nicaragua won that case. 
So I had a wonderful opportunity to talk with the lawyer about, did it help? You know, because the United States said, we're not going to listen to the case. We said, well, certainly it helped. You know, what they say and what they do is quite different. They didn't, the United States didn't want to be seen to be like bending to the court. But after the decision from the court, the US Congress adopted the Bolin Amendment, which made military support from the US to the Contras, the counter-revolutionaries, illegal. Uh, and also the decision on the Nicaragua versus United States case provided the basis for the negotiation for, the, for Oscar Arias from Costa Rica to negotiate the Central American peace accords in order to end the civil wars in Central America. I mean, this is quite something, you know, like a, that a case can provide a basis, like a, a diplomatic basis to take things forward. And then I started looking at like International Court of Justice cases. And it, came up time and time again that there was a case between two disputing countries and even if one of the countries lost and didn't like the decision of the court it actually ended up with a, a, a either a diplomatic solution or going along with the decision of the court which i thought was quite incredible so then i asked you know a question of one of the judges of the court and this was in preparation for our case again um in the international court of justice it doesn't have an enforcing body you know so does it mean what's the point of having a case if it doesn't have an enforcing body? And this was Judge Wiedemantry, uh, and he said, "Well, it's 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 got authority, and that authority leads to implementation. So around ninety percent, ninety to ninety-five percent of the cases, the decisions from the International Court of Justice are implemented, even though the court has no enforcement body to enforce it. To me, that was a really interesting observation." that the and this is the value of international law it is not re that enforceable i mean there are there are some enforcement bodies but most of that is you know voluntary compliance with the enforcement bodies but that's not the point what it does is that it provides a context that enables countries to resolve a dispute then otherwise they are like against each other um, it's a little bit like mediation. You know, you can have a fight, you know, like with someone else, with your brother or sister, your neighbours or something, and it's really difficult to, like, resolve that because you're really emotionally charged and you don't want to give in to the other person. But if you sit down and have a mediation, uh, it calms everything down. You get to put your view, you get to listen to the other side, you get to suggest solutions, you get to come up with something. You haven't given in to the other person. Um, so it's a little bit like that, and, and I've been very involved in setting up mediation programs in schools, in, in primary and secondary schools in New Zealand, and we found out the same thing happened, that with the mediations, when the students went in, 90 to 95% of the mediations worked. They were implemented. Even though the peer mediators couldn't enforce it, they worked. Um, and that's the same with the International Court of Justice. So that led me to look at not just the International Court of Justice, but also the Mediation Service of the United Nations, Permanent Court of Arbitration, and then also the other quiet diplomacy mechanisms that are provided by the United Nations. It's the primary uh, international legal body. There are others, of course, as well, like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and the Inter-American Courts and, and various others. But the UN is the primary one. Um, and we, New Zealand used the Mediation Service for example, the United Nations, when France, again, came into the play and blew up our peace boat, a Rainbow Warrior in our harbour. So this was an act of terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism in our harbour, killed one of our crew members uh, from the boat, Fernando. Um, we caught two of the agents who had been involved and 
uh, tried them because you know they'd killed someone and and that per- those two people got convicted and then once that happened France did not like that we caught the agents who like killed <laughs> our Greenpeace person so France put an economic boycott on New Zealand which means we couldn't d- trade with any of Europe because it was part of the European economic community so we were being punished with an economic boycott because we were trying to follow justice um, and we brought in the mediation service of the United Nations and that resolved the conflict with France. We managed to get an agreement from France, uh, acceptance of guilt, uh, compensation for Greenpeace, for the family of Fernando who got killed, uh, and for New Zealand. Um, and now we've restored peaceful relations, friendly relations yeah. with the country and we get on. So th- I could go on for a long time, which I will be in a yes. talk, I think, at the university here on various of these legal mechanisms that can help resolve conflicts between disputing countries that otherwise might not be able to be resolved. And it it doesn't rely on the capacity to enforce it. It relies on its providing a legal basis to resolve conflicts and provide, uh, you know, solutions. Thank you. Um, So we don't have that much time left, but my final question to you is what advice or suggestions do you have for those who want to contribute to peace, disarmament, and sustainable development in their own capacities? Yeah, my advice is follow your passion. You know, whatever you're passionate about, you know, maybe it's music or poetry or sports or debating or, you know, dance, whatever it is, you can use that as part of, you know, the campaign. Yes. Uh, so, you know, there are sports for peace organizations. I've actually run the New York Marathon as part of Peace and Sport, and it was fantastic. When I got involved in that, I was like running with like um, Tegla Lupe, the first African woman mm-hmm. to, to win the New York Marathon, and Paula Radcliffe, who was the world record holder in the marathon. I mean, they were far faster than me. But, you know, as part of the training team, it's like, wow, this is a wonderful experience. Um, and it's because I, I like sports. And I go, ah, oh, is there an idea of peace and sports? And there is. Um, so use your passion. Um, find out you know what is already happening. Uh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. They're already like different groups that are involved in the environment, you know, in climate, in peace, in disarmament. Uh, you can like you know it's very easy to Google search now and find who's doing what, and at what level are they working? Are they working at like a local level? Like are they trying to get their city to do something for peace? You know, or the climate. Um, and if it's the city, you could ask your city to join mayors for peace and do like an annual peace celebration, for example. Or they're working at the national level, uh, in which case it may be working with your local parliamentarian and ensuring that your local parliamentarian knows the peace and disarmament initiatives that are being proposed, including some that have been put at the United Nations General Assembly or for the UN Summit of the Future, which will be in 2024. We're putting forward proposals now and your parliamentarian could take them forward. Or you might even be able to get a meeting with your foreign minister or your environment minister or your climate minister, if you have one, at the national level. Or international, you know, you can join, if you're young and want to be involved in the world court case on climate change, then join World's Youth for Climate Justice, you know, and call on your government to do a submission to the court. There's a whole range of different ways. Um, I, as I said, my main encouragement to people is, is don't, don't push yourself into things you're not comfortable doing. If you're not comfortable protesting, then you don't need to join a protest in the street. There are other ways of being engaged. If you are comfortable about that, that's fine. Um, but you don't need to push yourself because there are so many different ways to work for peace in the climate. Thank you. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the podcast. And thank you so much for 
your contribution today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.